Well, it's, it truly is a joy to be back. Um, great memories, great time here. And uh, just we've been looking forward for a while to coming back this morning. I want to talk with you this morning about going on an adventure. And we're going to look at that from several different ways. And I think if we understand uh, what we're into, uh, we'll be amazed. Uh, in fact, sometimes I have trouble closing my mouth. I'm just... And what we're into. And we're going to look at that this morning, the adventure that God has called us into. But I do want to thank you for having us back. It's just, just great to be here. It's encouraging already. Um, we're encouraged by being here. Um, you guys who we have known before haven't changed very much. And that's encouraging to me. <laughs> and your kids, wow, they're growing up into... Uh, handsome young men and women. That's, uh, that's really neat to see. So it's good to see those good things happen. I told you when I left that I would pray for you. And uh, hmm, I've done that. Uh, I pray every day for uh, people. I commute to Kansas City, Missouri, two hours a day. And uh, rather than listen to the radio, I've chosen to use that time to pray for people I know. And so I've prayed for you since I left um, by families and the detail of what I know has become less and less, but God certainly has some good things in mind for you, which he discusses in his word. And um, there are certain things, of course, that I know uh, that you'd be interested in. So, uh, and he knows the rest of the details. So uh, I've, but it's been a matter of just a joy to me to at least remain connected with you uh, in that regard, even though I haven't seen you uh, very often since we went. But we're back again today. So let's make good use of our time. We are, uh, as I said, going to talk about going on an adventure with the Lord. And I hope this morning that this is an encouragement to you. This has been a great encouragement to me. It's such a gift to understand what life is all about because you have something to operate from. You have a baseline to run on. And uh, I pulled up behind a car the other day that was uh, loaded with some people, and, and the license plate said, Boldly Going Nowhere. And uh, I could believe that, just, just from the appearance of the people in the car. And <laughs> not because they were dressed differently from me or anything like that, but just the general appearance. You could understand that they probably hadn't sorted out which way the stream was running yet. Uh, and, and I'm so thankful that we have information about how life is put together and what we're all about, what we can be all about, this adventure that God calls us into. Well... Let me share a couple things with you. I brought some books with me. Remember, Dave's in the habit of doing that, and I want to be like Dave when I grow up. And <laughs> so I brought some books along, some things to share with you really quickly. We only have, I understand, about 30 to 40 minutes, and uh, I won't violate that. So uh, I want to cover quite a bit of ground in that time, and I'll have a handout for you pretty soon. Speaking of adventures, I wanted to read a little bit from The Hobbit. Uh, this is this is something that my wife and I have enjoyed, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, prior even to his rediscovery. And uh, part of what we do now in the evenings, every chance we get, is to sit and read some of the trilogy uh, together, just, to, just because we enjoy it. It's a great adventure. So let's take a look at The Hobbit and catch a sense of what we have. These books are great, not only because they're well-written, the language is remarkable, they're just so enjoyable, but because they have things in them that we recognize. 
about ourselves. And so we'll start with this, and then we're going to move to the Gospel of John and see what the real adventure is all about. Well, the opening says, And what is a hobbit? Hobbits are little people, smaller than dwarves. They love peace and quiet and good tilled earth. They dislike machines, but they're very handy with tools. They're nimble, but they don't like to hurry. They have sharp eyes and ears. They are inclined to be fat. They wear bright colors, but seldom wear shoes. They like to laugh and eat six meals a day, if they can get them. They like parties, and they like to give and receive presents. They inhabit a land they call the Shire, a place between River Brandywine and the Far Downs. So these are what hobbits are. Let's go a little further. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole, filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. So they're comfortable. This hobbit, the book goes on to say, after a detailed description of his hobbit hole, was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. This is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained, well, you'll see whether he gained anything in the end. A couple more pieces. Bilbo Baggins was standing on his front porch one morning, just enjoying the beautiful morning, getting the day started, and appreciating all the good things around him, when a traveling wizard named Gandalf walked up and said, Good morning. And uh, Bilbo responded, talking about the beauty of the morning and so on. And Gandalf said, very pretty, but I have no time to talk. I am looking for someone to share in an adventure that I am arranging, and it's very difficult to find anyone. And Bilbo replied, I should think so in these parts. We are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them, said our Mr. Baggins, and stuck one thumb behind his braces and, or suspenders and blew out another even bigger smoke ring. So he was enjoying his morning, and Gandalf stopped by to, to call him out to come on an adventure. And we're not going to talk about Bilbo this morning, but as you know, he went on an adventure, a great adventure. And uh, when he came back, he came back to the Shire, to his home, after being far away and doing many spectacular things, and looked at home and waxed philosophical and began singing. And Gandalf looked at him and said, My dear Bilbo, you are not the hobbit that you were. And what we're going to find this morning, what we're going to remind ourselves of, this isn't anything you don't know, is that God has called us on a great adventure. 2 Peter 1, which we won't have time to look at this morning, is a remarkable description of the process that God uses to take us through our life, all of the suffering, all of the good stuff, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if we respond positively to him, 
He makes us into people who are like himself. The bottom line of that chapter says we can even share in his nature. We can become people who are like him. And this is the adventure that we're going to look at this morning. Now, we're going to turn to John here very shortly. And I just wanted to to make two assumptions before we go there. God calls us to respond to him and to, to totally abandon ourselves to him, to totally rely on him for our life, and to totally abandon our, ourselves to him in our different circumstances, sometimes very difficult. It's the bottom line of sin that we're self-centered. And when things get tough, we want to pull back and manage this thing ourselves because that seems to be more immediately useful than relying on God to do it. But God asks us to abandon him to ourselves. And if we're going to do that, we have to make sure that what we read in his book is true. We can believe we have, he's given us the, um, the responsibility, the privilege of believing anything we want. He's created us in his image. And so when we make our choice to commit our lives to him, we better be sure it's true, hadn't we? Because there are a lot of different religious systems. There are a lot of different things that, that have no relationship to religion that we could believe in and follow. Uh, so, I'm going to make two assumptions. Number one, that the Bible is the Word of God. And we won't spend any time here this morning. This is a book by Josh McDowell, A Ready Defense. And it simply discusses a number of different kinds of things about Jesus, about the Bible. There's a section in here that I'm going to just quote very quickly from that talks about how we got our Bible. I'll read you that, and then uh, just make a quick comment about that. This is the section that's labeled, Who Decided What to Accept into the Bible? And Josh says, One thing to keep in mind is that the church did not create the canon or the books that were included in what we call the scriptures. That's called the canon. Instead, the church recognized the books that were inspired from their inception. They were inspired by God when written. Okay? And I won't go any further with this this morning because this is not what we're studying about. But you have to make the assumption that the Bible is the Word of God. I taught a class um, at the church I'm attending, uh, fourth graders, a few weeks ago. And their question was, where did we get our Bible? So we had a chance to talk about this. And I had them do something. We talk about the Bible being inspired, which means God breathed. And that isn't as mystical as it sounds. I had them do something. I had them hold their hand right in front of their mouth and say... I like horses. So try that. Put your hand in front of your mouth. I like horses. Okay. And you feel your breath, right? All, all it means when God breathed the scriptures is that he talked. And the people who, to whom he talked faithfully recorded what he said. And so we believe in the original languages that word by word, punctuation by punctuation, Mark, that's a faithful recording of the message of God. Okay, so we make that assumption that the Bible is the Word of God, inspired, breathed by Him. The other assumption that we have to make in order to have the discussion that we're going to have this morning is that Jesus is who He said He was, because we're going to look at some things that He said this morning. Jesus is who He said He was. And that's a whole other discussion, so we're not going to go there except to quickly quote from this book, The Case for Christ, by Lee Strobel. Now, when I was here, I spent considerable time with some of you in a small group going through this book. And this is a careful examination of the the biblical evidence, the extra-biblical evidence, the archaeological evidence, uh, the historical evidence of different kinds 
about who Jesus was. And this fellow is an investigative reporter, and so he knows how to ask the right questions. And he talked with people in the different fields who had spent their whole academic life pursuing these questions. Okay, and he drew a conclusion. I'll read you his conclusion, and then we'll get on. This is his conclusion after that investigation. After a personal investigation that spanned more than 600 days and countless hours, my own verdict in the case for Christ was clear. As someone educated in journalism and law, I was trained to respond to the facts wherever they led me. For me, the data demonstrated convincingly that Jesus is the Son of God who died as my substitute to pay the penalty I deserved for the wrongdoing I had committed. This is a fellow who did not want to believe that. He was no Christian, and he'd be the first to tell you. And he wanted to prove, he wanted to put to rest all of this stuff about Jesus being the Son of God. And he knew how to ask the questions. He talked to the right people. And this is the conclusion that he came to. And he himself became a Christian, became a believer because of the results of his investigation. So we're going to make those two two, um, assumptions this morning. Now, we talked about the Bible being the inspired Word of God. And we're not going to be so ambitious as to look at all of it this morning. But I do need somebody's help. Can I get a couple people? Thank you. Thank you. If you will cover both sides of the room. Everybody take one. They're all stapled together. So we're not going to be so ambitious as to look at all of it this morning, but we are going to be so ambitious as to look at the entire book of John this morning. And we obviously won't look at all of the book of John. Okay, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of John, we'll get started. Before we start, let's pray together. Father God, we do uh, come to you. We bow and worship because we know who you are. Uh, We thank you for revealing yourself to us. Uh, We worship and praise you as we've been doing... um, because of who you are. And we thank you because of the direct benefit of that to us. We uh, remember your son. We were singing this morning, we praise you, O God, for the son of thy love. And we do. Um, We recognize in him your representative who's brought us information about you. And so as we open your scripture this morning, this, this record that you have so carefully preserved and so wonderfully given to us over a period of time, Uh, is ours, and we recognize the privilege of having it, and as we open it, we're excited to see you in it. You tell us you give us the gift of the Holy Spirit to teach us things that are true spiritually and to help us remember those, and so we ask you for that this morning, 
that you would teach us and help us remember the things that we need to continue in our process of growing up to be like you. So we're glad for the time together this morning, glad for the time around your word. We ask you to bless it and protect it, strongly support us in it, and uh, we simply give ourselves to each other and to you in that regard. In your son's name, amen. Okay. Now, what you have in your hands is uh, the result of a study that I did, and I'll tell you why I was interested in doing that. John is a whole lot like Bilbo Baggins, uh, in that John had a great life, uh, both before and after the Lord came along, but it changed dramatically. John lived in Galilee. He was a fisherman. He was the son of Zebedee and Salome, and they were fairly well-to-do. We know that because Salome became, his mom, became a part, a part of a group of women who followed Jesus around during his ministry, just making sure he was taken care of. And it takes a little money for somebody to be free to do that. So he came from a fairly wealthy family. He was a fisherman, was good at it. Uh, when Jesus called him and his brother, James, uh, he called them sons of thunder. So John was a, a kick-tail, get-it-done kind of guy. He just was like that. And, and he was changed remarkably because he described himself in the books that he, that he wrote. He went on, he wrote John, the Gospel. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Epistles, and then he wrote Revelation. And so he shared those with us. And he was so impressed with the fact that Jesus loved him. He described himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. And you don't take, you wouldn't suspect that a guy like this uh, that we've just had a look at would sit on the shore pulling flower petals off a flower saying, he loves me, he loves me not. You wouldn't suspect that about John. But something so impressed him that that was his description of himself, the disciple that Jesus loved. And so I became interested in, in this adventure that John went on, and I was asking myself, what did John see? And so I read his book and several times and began taking notes about what he saw. And on this page, there are four critical questions. If we're going to look at what John saw, there are four critical questions. Who is Jesus? And what do we know about him? Second question, who am I? What can I tell about myself, about who I am as a person from Scripture? What can I expect of God? And what does God require of me? And in those four questions, there is all the detail we need. John, uh, in, in this book later on, we'll see, says, I didn't write it all down. I couldn't. But I wrote enough of it down that you can catch this. This is all you need to plug into this. And so he calls us in to this adventure of following him. Let's take a look at what he calls us to. The first thing we're going to look at is who Jesus is. And we obviously can't read the book together this morning, but I wanted to give you the whole outline so that you could take it home. And if you have an interest in this, this the scriptures are there, the references are there, and you can pursue any of those questions that you want to, or all of them, if you wish. But what we're going to read together this morning is just the first few verses of the first chapter. So let's do that, starting in verse 1. And listen for the questions, who is Jesus? Who am I? What does God expect of me? And what can I expect of him. Okay? And let's see what John has to say about that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were, were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. And we'll stop there. Now, if we read on through verse 34, we'd pick up just a little bit more information, but we won't do that for the sake of time. If you'll look at the first page of your outline, we'll take a quick summary look at who Jesus is. We're going to concentrate. There are five names, or five ways that that, that John presents Jesus in these first 34 verses. Uh, the first is the word, the expression of God. The second is the creator. The third is the life, which is the light of men. The fourth, in verse 29 of that same chapter, is the Lamb of God. And in verse 34 of that chapter, is he's presented as the Son of God. Now, I'm going to concentrate, for the sake of time this morning, on two, uh, the word and the life. And if you follow your outline, we can go right through this. The word is the expression of God, and Jesus is presented as an ambassador, as a messenger, directly from God, and it lists his qualifications. He was with God in the beginning, and the beginning is an interesting word because God doesn't have any beginning, but we who are captured in time uh, find that useful to think in terms of in the beginning. That's as close as we can get to that idea, but forever the Son, Jesus, was with God. So nothing happened that he didn't see. So that's one qualification. He was there. He was God, so he understood it absolutely perfectly. He, uh, let's see. Okay, he existed in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. Then he became flesh and dwelled among us in the 14th verse. And he declared and explained God in verse 18 that we saw. So here he's a person who's acquainted with everything that's happened to God and, and, and with God, regarding God, and he came in the flesh to explain God to us. And if we go on in further chapters, you have two other references in chapter 3 and 5, you see Jesus saying that he doesn't speak on his own. He speaks the words that the Father told him to speak. 
So here's a representative that came to tell us what God had for us to know. And also he goes on in chapter 5 saying he works the works of God. So what he does is not on his own initiative. He just comes to do what God told him to do. So we have an ideal representative. If someone is interested in spiritual things and is interested in knowing what God thinks and who he is and how this all comes together, there isn't anybody better qualified than someone like this to give us that information. Okay, so we see him as the word. And then we see him as life. The scriptures say, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we beheld his glory, or his essence. Glory is an interesting word. We all have a glory. It's just basically what we are, who we are. Cassius Clay, uh, and who became Muhammad Ali, was fond of telling us that he was the greatest. And for a long time he was. There wasn't anyone who could dispute that. And he's one of the world's greatest boxers, and he was glad to tell us about that. He enjoyed his glory and publicized it. And so we all have one. It's our rep. It's based on who we are. And John, though, made an observation about Jesus that he had a glory that was different. It was the same idea, but it was like someone who had come from the Father. He recognized the difference. And he said he was full of grace and truth. And those two things are important because what Jesus came to tell us are things that are true about God and, and ways in which God is gracious. A woman in the, in the early church described grace like this. It's the love of God, she said. It's like our bodies. Uh, we have a skin which encloses our muscles, and our muscles enclose our skeleton, our skeleton encloses our internal organs. And so the, we're, we're building layers. And she described the grace of God as being simply submerged or layered in the love of God. And it's not a bad description at all. It's one of the best ones for grace I've ever heard. And so we're surrounded. Different passages describe God as lavishing his love on us. So we're surrounded by the grace of God, the love of God. And Jesus came to tell us what is true about God and what is gracious about God. Now, we're going to turn the page and go on to our next question, who am I? We didn't deal with this in any depth, but you all know this. At verse 3 says that, that Jesus was the creator. All things were made through him. And the writer goes on to say there wasn't anything made that he didn't make. So he comes at it from both directions and just says nothing exists that Jesus didn't create. Okay, So he's the creator. So who are we? We're a creature. We've been created by God. We'll look quickly at, uh, at some things that are true about us. And I'll just read through these, and you can follow me along. If we're in our natural state, and the Bible describes that as, as being sinful, we've sinned against God, it says we are blind, ignorant, rebellious, condemned, we're a slave of sin, and we're a child of the devil. Let's take just a minute to look at that. won't spend a lot of time there, but let's describe that just a little bit. Not a happy thing. And this is in regard to spiritual things, okay? Now, men and women are remarkable creatures. We're created in the image of God. I took uh, just a beginning course in anatomy and physiology when I was in college, and I really did have trouble shutting my mouth every day when I walked out of there. I was just amazed at what went on in here to make this thing work. It's wonderful. And so this is not a put-down of, of humans, the creation of God. What this is is a description of what kind of shape we were in spiritually because of our sin. Okay, 
So, we were blind, we didn't see the light, it says, uh, we were ignorant, Jesus came, the world didn't know him, uh, he tells us that no one has seen God at any time, we're rebellious, his own, the Jews, uh, wouldn't receive him when he came and explained who he was, we're condemned, we love darkness rather than light, and turn to one verse, John 3.36, let's just pick one out of there, take a quick look at that. Okay, John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we're condemned. That verse says several important things. Jesus presented himself as containing this stuff called life. He contained it, and he could share that. And it says he, the person who doesn't believe on him won't ever get any of that. Just doesn't have access to that. But in fact, they're condemned to the wrath of God. So, the progression, if you read through John, is this, that we're rebellious sinners, have no interest in God at all. God came to die for us, to redeem us, and if we accept that, then we belong to him, according to verse 12 here. And uh, then, but Jesus says, I'm not going to own you as slaves. And, and we see a progression of the intimacy in that relationship. He says, you're going to be my friends, because everything God tells me, I'm telling you. And so I'm going to confide in you. So he brings us closer. And then as we read on, we see that we're going to become the bride of his son. Okay? We're going to become the bride of Jesus Christ eventually. Very, very close. And all of us who've been in love relationships can certainly appreciate that. And then he goes even further and says, not only will that be true, but you're going to be a joint heir, a co-heir with my son, God says. So, the joy that Jesus talks about in John 17 will be ours, his joy. He's going to share that. His glory that, that costs him everything to earn uh, is, is going to be ours as well. He's going to share that. So, he brings us very, very close um, to him. But, uh, if, if we haven't taken advantage, we haven't believed in him, we haven't taken advantage of his offer, then we'll not see that, is what it says. Let's look at the redeemed man. And read through that. We're called children of God. As many as received him have the right to become a child of God. And that's an interesting term because it's a legal term. It's based on a contract. All of our rights, we're Americans. And if we go overseas and somebody messes with us, uh, that's a problem. Because legally we belong to the United States. And um, that's significant. And that's based, though, on the documents that on which our government is based. That's what it's based on. And God is saying that we have a contract with him that he has set up. We didn't earn this. He set it up. He sent his son. He died to redeem us. And when we become children of God by believing on him, then um, we have it on the basis of this contract that he has set up. So let's finish this section. Um, children of God, free from sin, everlasting life. Uh, we are saved uh, we become true worshipers, and we become co-laborers. Uh, co so, in contrast to children of the devil, slaves of sin, blind and ignorant, condemned and rebels, our situation is exactly 180 degrees different. Okay, now those things we know. In a couple minutes, let's finish up the rest of what we have here to talk about. And then, if you want to study this further, you may. What can I expect of God? Okay, now let's look at the natural man first. We've already looked at John 3, 36. 
The natural man can expect that he will be condemned. He'll never see life. And he'll experience the wrath of God for all eternity. He'll be separated from God. He'll never see life. And he'll be subject to the wrath of God. He'll be punished for all eternity. So that's the situation for a person who dies in his sin without receiving the salvation of the Lord. And you know that. Well, let's continue with the, the situation for the redeemed man here and just read the descriptive words. He offers us a life in which we are satisfied. He said, if you're thirsty, I'll give you the kind of water you'll never thirst again. If you're hungry, I'll give you the kind of bread you'll never hunger again. So we have a life in which we can experience satisfaction. We can experience joy, meaning, purpose, or destination. God says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back so that I'm going to get you, so that you can come and be with me where I am. We have a helper, the Holy Spirit, who helps us learn and remember uh, things about spiritual life. We are not orphans. We have the peace of God. We have discipline from him. It's interesting, Franklin Covey has a program that's quite expensive. You can pay your money and take advantage of a personal counselor, one-on-one, to help you grow into your best self. And uh, it's an attractive offer. And we're all tempted by that, aren't we? We have the idea of perfect. Uh, The Army slogan, be all that you can be, is naturally attractive to us way down in here somewhere because we'd like to be our best selves. And everything that's written on motivational material um, is catching on to that. And, and that stuff is useful. There is a use in structuring our life and being efficient and so on. But the people who don't understand who God is simply don't know the basis for it, number one, and they don't know the extent of it, number two. God offers us this personal counselor, much better than Franklin Covey, and we don't have to pay big bucks for us. He gives it to us as a gift, the Holy Spirit. And God says, uh, any branch that bears fruit, if you're in the game, he's going to prune it so it bears more fruit. He'll turn you into your best self. So we have that opportunity. And we have the friendship of God, and in the end we have victory. He said, if you have tribulation, don't worry about it, because I've overcome the world. So the victory is ours in the end. Now, that's a situation, uh, or those are descriptive words that describe what we can expect of God. And the last thing we're going to do is look at what God requires of me. And then we'll wrap this up. The first thing that God requires of me is that I become his child. And we've looked at John 12. But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That's the first step. And we know that. That's the Gospel of John. So if, we're, if we don't become a child of his, then the rest of it's just a moot point. We don't have spiritual life, and we can't participate in what we're looking at. But let's read some descriptive uh, things about uh, the redeemed man, what he requires of us. We need to worship the Father in spirit and truth. We need to work in the harvest. We need to honor the Son or simply give him the due that he deserves. We need to not make the mistake of laboring for food which perishes. He encourages us to work for the food which endures to eternal life. And that's a whole discussion in itself. It says, don't judge according to appearance, but use righteous judgment. Abide in my word. Serve me, and you'll save your life, and my Father will honor you. If you hear my words and you don't keep them, you're going to be judged by them. If you hear my words and you do keep them, you'll be blessed. He calls us to serve one another, the foot-washing example. 
receive whomever I, re- I send, and you receive me, and you also receive the Father at the same time. Love one another as I have loved you. Ask anything in my name, and I will do it. Take the peace I give you. Don't be troubled or afraid. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Keep my commandments. Do whatever I command you, and you'll be my friends. Go and bear fruit. Remember that if the world hates you, that it hated me first. Keep that in mind. Bear witness of me. I send you as witnesses. And in the, in the last one, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. Well, let's wrap this up. What this comes down to is this great adventure that we've been called on. And John had two purposes, he says, in writing this book. And they're the last thing that's entered there, chapter 20, verse 30. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, or is the Messiah that God is going to send. Believe that. Believe he's the Son of God. And then have life in his name. Now, we all understand that in terms of the gospel. We need to do that in order to be what we call saved, or to become children of God. But sometimes what we forget in the daily grind, we forget to believe it. And we forget to live like that. And what John is calling us to is this life in which God has expectations and he has guarantees. He has this great adventure. And we've already talked about Second Peter 1 that describes this process in which we will wind up being changed hobbits. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be like the Lord and he's going to make us like the Lord. At the bottom of that page, Jesus made the comment in John 17, I've glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And I think that's bottom line for us, too. That's the way to glorify God with our life. Simply do the work that he's given us to do. And in that process, we are changed to be like him. And we get to participate in his will for our present time, however that works out for us. So the bottom line is obedience. The thing I wanted to, the reason I wanted to share these things with you this morning is simply to, I think I've taught you nothing that you didn't know, uh, but to remind you of things that are easy to forget. It's easy to get the impression that we're hobbits and that life consists of living in comfortable hobbit holes and eating six meals a day if we can get our hands on it and giving and receiving presents and just simply enjoying our friends. It's easy to get that impression. In fact, we have to kind of fight against that, or we sort of slide into that. And God calls us on this great adventure. And the adventure, compared to what Bilbo Baggins and his nephew Fredo went on, uh, is huge compared to that. It makes them look as if they'd never left the Shire. Because good is better, evil is worse, the consequences are greater, and we get a chance to participate in this great adventure for the glory of God and for our own benefit at the same time. So my encouragement to you is, if in the grind of things it's seeming like the Shire and it's seeming like we're just hobbits, just kind of making it through every day, uh, that you remember that the adventure is real, more real than we know. God has called us into an adventure that it's far greater than we can understand. But if we work at it and we keep those things in mind and we are simply obedient, then... uh, then we can grow in that and participate in that by his grace and with the help of the Holy Spirit. So be encouraged um, when you're discouraged. Remember these things and participate in them and grow into the people that God has uh, in mind for you to be. Let's close in prayer.
Father, again, we appreciate the fact that you have carefully preserved uh, this, your word, this Bible uh, that is ours to read and learn from. Thank you for telling us who you are. We appreciate your son who brought us this, this explanation of who you are and taught us what's true and gracious about you. Thank you that he was so clear in laying down what we could expect from him and what our situation was and, uh, and what he expected from us. We pray you'll help us use the book of John uh, as a measure, to measure our own life, to see if we're living up and to and doing the things that you require of us. Do encourage us in our walk, we pray. Thanks for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.